0: This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer & Brewing Magazine, creators of the annual Brewer's Retreat. To brew on the main coast June 9th through 12th with legends like Vinny Salerzo of Russian River, get tickets now at brewersretreat.com. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Sean Buchan of Cerebral Cerebral Brewing in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I got your name right and I screwed up the brewery name, but but welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, We are in their room down off of Colfax Avenue in uh, the middle of Denver proper. Uh, over the years, Cerebral has uh, built a reputation for brewing kind of progressive styles and uh, and being kind of on the forefront of all of these trends that we've uh, the brewing industry has embraced or otherwise. Uh, and I shouldn't say embraced; I should say both embraced and uh, resisted in uh, in somewhat equal parts. Um, but we're gonna we'll get to this conversation in a minute uh, before we get started. I uh, Just want to give a shout out to our sponsors. As the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, GD has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. GD backs every project they touch and provides service second to none. Contact GD Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1 800 555 0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America, America's largest craft brewing industry gathering. Join your peers in Denver, April eighth through eleventh. Details at craftbrewersconference.com. Speaking of the Craft Brewers Conference, that's next month, and uh, I imagine uh, Sean, you are aware, you are yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. prepping for that right now. Yeah,
0: expecting an influx of brewer friends, uh, you know, for that uh, important week for the industry.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know we've been fielding texts from friends that are going to be out for for a few months so it's it's always fun to see uh how much they procrastinate like i do uh, so it makes me feel better you know yeah
0: yeah four four weeks away and they're, they're building plans yes yeah, how, how many collaborations are you going to do in that kind of time well
1: that's what we're figuring out right now actually we've got uh, we can't we can't brew what we package um on canning days just based on how much space they take up so we're yeah. I think we've got the brew house tied up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday. So I think we, and I can't add any weekend brews or my brewers will kill me. So I think we're good. Well, there you go. That's the, that's the beauty of the Craft Brewers <laughs> Conference,
0: uh, bringing folks together. I'm sure we'll be here uh, in your tap room and, uh, and talking to folks uh, during that uh, week as well. Uh, let's talk about uh, cerebral brewing and, uh, you yeah. know, what you guys do. I know we normally kick off these podcasts with a, with a you know, kind of a brief uh, historical arc. Uh, but give me give me the two-minute elevator pitch for Cerebral Brewing, and what uh, what made you decide to launch a brewing business?
1: Um, so I had a bunch of friends that were doing it. Honestly, uh, I started, uh, so my background is physical therapy. I got my doctorate at CU, uh, started practicing, got pretty discouraged pretty early, um, started doing photography on the side, and started doing some stuff for a local booze blog, Denver Off the Wagon. Friends from that got me a homebrew kit, started homebrewing a lot, then that class uh, home Brewer gets way too into the hobby and turns pro story starts yep um, I've never heard so that yeah, one before I know it's it's so unique <laughs> um so yeah, that's how we started. We opened November two thousand and fifteen, so we're uh, about three and a half years old right now, and yeah
0: yeah, you're one of those breweries that I can actually remember getting a press release about your opening <laughs> and an invitation <laughs> down there to the opening and uh you know and, and I mean we've always you know felt like new folks in the media world and yet uh, you know now uh, we're about we're, this actually this March is our fifth anniversary for Craft Beer Brewing Magazine and uh,
1: congratulations thank
0: you thank you and uh, you yeah, know, but it's been fun to watch you know and develop a pers- uh, perspective watching breweries like you guys start and then become something um, and you know become connected into that broader world of brewers you know around the country in three and a half years which sounds like a relatively short amount of time to build a a reputation on a kind of national scale for a small you know local brewing business
1: yeah i don't really know what to tie that to either um i I think a lot of it is just right place right time with some connections um you know we had we had some really good friends in the industry and you know you make friends with one brewery and then all of a sudden you're connecting with other ones and, and learning about how to make you know a better beer than you were before so it's it's been a really fun like transformative three and a half years Um, homebrewing was kind of the same for me I only homebrewed for like two and a half years before we were like let's open a brewery Um, so I guess things have have advanced pretty far in the past five years but it's been a fun ride
0: tell me about that kind of cultural connection and I'm curious about this I've I've remarked to other folks before what's interesting is that you know in other kinds of industries uh, competitors don't lift each other up and build a network for each other. Generally speaking, yeah. In the beer world, it's completely different. You know, it, it the success of individual smaller breweries and the, you know, the, that feeling of connection is basically almost built on a mutual marketing, uh, you know, kind of plan. Where by doing collaborations, by creating interesting things and new things together with each other. Um, you know the entire you know mass and there's you know a few hundred small breweries that are kind of all moving together interconnected with each other you know collaborating building you know social media stories building exciting products that get their consumers uh, energized but at the same time you know through that kind of connection turning on their consumers to this other brand you know that they're partnering with um and so it's this kind of you know rising tide raises all all boats um you know kind of collective but but almost you know this almost a diy ethos to the whole thing that's made it happen it hasn't relied on manipulating national media or any anything else i mean it's just kind of it's a it's a groundswell from the bottom up um but how you know how how does, does that work and how did you get an entree into that
1: I don't really know how it works. Uh, we're still figuring that out. But I would say on a local level, um, I before when we knew that we were going to get serious about opening a brewery, right. I asked anyone and everyone to let me shadow, let me uh, come in and help. Um, I had a lot of connections through our homebrew club that we started with, and a lot of those people had gone pro. So I got to you know watch. I got to watch our mutual friend open up and and you know and like their arc. To where they are now, and they have been completely transparent with everything. And some of my closest friends in the industry, and then, um, you know, other friends that had opened breweries too. I get to come in and like, hey, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna brew with you today, and, and make sure I understand what I'm even getting into. Um, and local friends were incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, going in, shadowing Bess at uh, when she was working at Wincoop at the time, and and just hanging out for entire brew days and being like, I want to make sure that this is not only what I want to do, but I understand how to do it because I came from homebrewing. I don't know what I'm doing back there. Uh, And I learned that, you know, very quickly when, when we, um, had our own system. Yeah. Um, and then on a national level, I think it was, you know, I'm not the most outgoing person, but I think I've just made an effort to, um, kind of suppress that a little bit and, and push, um, push myself into situations that, you know, I want to meet new people and I want to, I want to learn from the best in the industry. And some of the connections just kind of happen spontaneously. Um, I met um, the guys at Civil Society, where I was actually supposed to meet them. The CBC that was in DC a few years ago, yep. And it never panned out. We were always, you know, at different spots in town, and it just. Right. Uh, and they were like, "Well, you know, we we've, we've been talking for so long via text. Like, come down, let's make a beer." Um, and you know, that was probably one of the one of the connections that you know. Then through them, I've met the guys at Finback, and like, you know, it just kind of it just. Everybody knows somebody else, and you you meet that other group of people. Um, and then all of a sudden it's this crazy thing where you have this group of friends across the country that you just see, you know, once or twice a month at festivals and um, those are closer than a lot of my friends anywhere so
0: so you know on that there's the the aesthetic of it, you know, you have a you you produce good-looking materials out there but is there some you know gateway of quality that uh, you know the peers in the brewing industry expect from you or, or some kind of you know, uh, game recognizing game, you know, in order to, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, to kind of get through that, um, you know, because there's a lot of people making them. I mean, 7,000 breweries in the country right now. Yeah. You know, and yet, you know, of that group that, that you know, are collabing together and producing these beers. And, and part of that, you may be talking about maybe 300 of those 7,000. Um, you know, what what is that? Like for you as a brewery, what, what are your criteria for breweries that you uh, end up doing collaborations with?
1: Uh, I mean, for for collaborations, we we don't really we don't brew with anybody that we don't know. Yeah. Um, so I do, you know, I do unf- I do get a lot of a lot of emails around GABF and now CBC. They're like, right. hey, let's make a beer. And I'm like, hey, I'd I'd love to hang out with you first. Um, you know, it's kind of like a date where it's like you're there for eight hours <laughs> together, and yeah, you want to yeah. hang out and you know you want to have fun and, um, so th- so that's kind of our our rule really is like we collab with friends now yeah. and. Um, you know, at the beginning, we, I can't say that was the case because we were forming those friendships, but we, we had common interests. It was like, Hey, we both brew this style of beer and we, you know, even new England IPA, if you, whatever style you want to call that, there's a million takes within that. And, um, you know, it's kind of just looking at what, um, what the brewer's goals are. What do they brew when they're not brewing hazy IPA? Um, and just finding those common interests and common goals. And then, you know, what do we have in common? You know, we hung out for four hours at a bar and it seemed like 30 minutes. Like, yeah, that's going to be a relationship that we uh, probably want to foster and have them here and, you know, travel to their spot. Um, So I think we're fortunate enough that now that it gets to be about friendship um, and, and more of what it means on a personal level, you know, it's great to have breweries come in and we get to put their label on a can or their logo on a can Um, but that's not really the end goal anymore. I'm not looking to like collab to sell more beer. Um, it's, sometimes we have to tone down the amount that we do because I look up at our tap board and I see that four of our 12 beers are collab beers and I'm like, well, it's not the best representation of what we do. But you know, unfortunately we do have weeks with like GABF and CBC where that is the easiest excuse for all of our friends to come see us. So it all happens at the same time, but it's, it's still fun. It's fortunate to be in a position like that.
0: Yeah, so there's no, uh, you know, there's no quality gatekeep there, or I th-
1: there is too. I think that's, I guess that's like the unspoken. Um, yeah, you know the 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 quality of what they're producing has to be, you know, something that we respect, um, and and vice versa. Obviously, they wouldn't want to work with us if they uh, didn't believe that we were producing something that was good. Um, you know, branding is a big part of it too. Yeah, but um, most most people that are, you know, at the top of the quality game are. Are doing some pretty cool branding stuff too, um, so that's that's the fun part of it.
0: Um, yeah, how do you balance that? You mentioned that you know you like to have more of your beers and building your brand versus building this kind of connected brand and and uh, you know collaborative kind of thing with other people. Yeah. You know, it has to be a kind of constant challenge for you because you you want to sell beer to your consumers and produce beer and serve it to, to the folks that walk into your tap room that represents what you do so they build a, a connection with your your brand. Um.
1: Especially you know. when a lot of the things that you do on a collaboration are maybe things outside of your comfort zone, or yeah. or don't fully uh, represent either brand individually. Right. Um, that's that's been the You're the, yeah, right. Those
0: collaborations are not the beers that you've brewed a hundred times, or yes. based on beers that you've brewed a hundred times, where yeah. you know how to do it, you've got it down, you know the yeast can perform, you know, you know. Oh yeah, things can
1: go you... very wrong on that.
0: Sure. <laughs> sure. And you're a small business. You need to yeah. sell the beer that you make.
1: We do, but I mean, we're. Um, I think you hear this from a lot of people that are making good beers. We dump. I mean, fortunately, we have not dumped a beer in a while. But I mean, we. I think we dumped eight batches in our first year. Um, you know, it's it's it happens. If if a beer doesn't work out, you dump sure, it. Sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it does get to be a bit of a balance, and I don't know that we're balancing it well. I'll I'll kind of get jokes from our taproom staff about how, you know, how many collabs we have on at a time, and sometimes it just that's that's the way it lines up. You you. Uh, at least coming into this, I always thought like we'd have a meticulously planned tap list and we'd hit these, you know, these things, we have 12 taps and, um, you know, that can give you a broad, uh, representation of styles. And a lot of times you'd look at your tap board and it's like, how did that happen? <laughs> it was like a year and a half ago. We looked up and, and we had five beers on tap and it was like four of them were, were dark. And we're like, Oh God, because <laughs> uh, things just you know things kick in an order that you weren't expecting, or sales, outside sales picks up on a beer, and you, you know you you have to recover, and and your next batches aren't out for a set amount of time, so you can't yeah. really do anything about it. Uh, we have a, a pretty limited production capacity here. We keep expanding, but um, you know it's it's pretty minimal expansion because we're a four thousand square, uh, square foot space, and half of that is production. Um, so we we just we try to be mindful of it and and when we bring people in to do collabs, I sometimes have to dictate like, hey, um yeah, you know, here's the styles I would prefer that we do based on well you know, I have six right, IPAs right. on right now. i i you know let's maybe do something outside that box yeah. or or you know just change the IPA up a little bit if we're gonna do something hoppy and not um not just make it blend in with the others.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about brewing more in a second, but uh first another note from our sponsors, great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with assistance you need at every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-374. Two seven three nine. Also, Scott Fabricating is the craft industry's leading choice for packaging line automation, specializing in depalletizing, repalletizing, conveyance, rinsing, drying, fill detection, and decoding. Fab has over six hundred installations in breweries, wineries, and distilleries worldwide. With a reliable team of engineers dedicated to fast, reliable customer service, you can count on them to provide systems custom tailored for your specific needs. Contact Scott Fab today at nine seven zero four zero three eight five six two, or reach out online at scafabricating.com. You mentioned earlier you guys use BSG and uh, G and D mm-hmm. uh, and members of the BA. And, yep, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a nice little confluence when the folks we're talking to are also uh, well, you know. <laughs> customers of our of our sponsors no we do appreciate uh the sponsors underwriting this this is obviously content that we produce free and put out there in the world and uh uh, the support of them helps us bring these great conversations to you guys so uh thank you to all of our sponsors um let's talk a little bit about styles and the way that you brew them yeah um from from those early days of cerebral you kind of staked out uh claim in, in 2015 and onwards with um, you know styles that were relatively progressive at the time. It's hard for me to now think back to 2019 back to those dark days of 2015. I those, days, per- <laughs> those days before people in Colorado here yeah. made hazy IPAs and back when everyone thought that it was just that that yeah. kind of you know f- f- freak thing. But you got in you got in the game pretty early on that
1: yeah i mean that's something that we knew we wanted to do when we open and i would qualify the progressive statement as progressive for colorado Uh, (laughs) okay it's all relative you know we're we're on a bit of an island here it's uh you know we're very obviously very inland but things exist on the you know say east coast for for years and years and years and people here are still making the same style ipa and you know, we always joke about it, but like before we opened um, the Colorado IPA, if you want to call it that, was, you know, they're, they're very good, but they are very malty. There's, you know, there's a lot of Munich, a lot of Crystal, a lot of hops, and those are fine, but um, I, I don't know what value I would add if I opened and did that. Right. Um, plus, I came from home brewing. If I need and to drink Odell
0: IPA, I'm just going to go drink Odell. Yeah, it's going to be a better version they, of than us doing they it. They make so. a fantastic IPA. They it's do. One of my favorite beers in the world. But yeah, right. How are you going to make it better than them?
1: Yeah, I, w- I would. not And it, and it's all about making it your own on this scale too. Right. Um, you know, I came from home brewing where I was reading all these home brewing blogs, uh, the Mad Fermentationists, and you know, guys like that that are that are doing these. I've never, you know. Maybe once or twice had like a Treehouse or a Trillium or a Tired Hands beer when I was, um, was homebrewing. But I, I just saw what these, these styles were going for. And it, you know, I just found them to be more drinkable when I was brewing them. I'm sure if I tried my homebrew now that I was making then it would not be very good. But uh, <laughs> Of course. Of course. Uh, uh, so that was the direction we knew we wanted to take. And, and it was a way that we knew we would stand out. But we also knew we were going to catch a ton of flack for it. Yeah. Um, and it
0: was the flavor in that style the drug that drew you to it
1: yeah the flavor and the drinkability because for me I didn't I've never loved the the intense bitterness and in that uh in like that gypsum like chewing on a Tylenol taste uh that you can get on some of the more aggressive west coast styles I still like west coast IPA but um what I found myself drinking was just you know you're always looking for something different and no one was providing that and it wasn't really like us, uh, thinking about like a business edge, like I'm going to make so much money doing this. It was like, we're just going to make this. It's, it's, it's good. Um, and there was a lot of trials and tribulations with us learning to make that on a, uh, professional scale. Um, tell me about those. Uh, well, I would say the, you know, yeast, um, Yeast is tricky, and everybody thinks it's really easy to make a hazy beer. But you're, yeah. you know, initially, you, your goal is never to make a hazy beer. But um, for for the things we were going for, for you know, that balance between attenuation, uh, hop character, um, level of bitterness, in that it was it was a little bit difficult to figure out because I was trying initially to just take homebrew techniques and put them on our ten barrel system. So we were doing. You know 160 170 degree hop stands uh, I learned very quickly don't add any hops before you do that or you clog your heat exchanger with hops <laughs> um, so all the you know all the things that that you can do wrong we probably did yeah. early on um, I think the the end product was was very good at the beginning but it is much better now but we had a lot of people that came in that that it would be a balance of uh, I don't like IPAs and we could convert them to be like no I think you'll like this and they did um, but also the usually the the uh, middle-aged home brewer that would tell me that I accidentally poured them a heff, uh, and I would say I'm sorry. It's not this is not a heff of Eisent, but uh, um, I encourage you to try it. It's maybe not a BJCP style yet, um, you know, but it's what we like to brew. This is our IPA. It's intentionally cloudy. Uh, that was a difficult you know difficult argument to make in Colorado when every IPA was clear. Um,
0: How many of those guys come back and order it, uh, partic- you know, specifically these days?
1: I, I think a good amount. Yeah. I think that I do think there is, um, a lot of culture in Colorado where, um, people kind of just expect to walk in and see an Amber and a Brown and a Porter and, you know, all these, all these brew pubs that, that basically started this brewing scene in Colorado still exist and make awesome representations of that style. And I think there is a big crowd for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Typically, that's the same crowd that walks in with a growler and is upset when we cannot fill it. Um, so, a little bit of crossover there, <laughs>
0: for sure, for sure. So, tell tell me a little bit back on the the subject of hazy IPAs. Yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed in drinking your beers for the last three and a half years is that uh, you've gone through some serious phases. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not quite Picasso and his uh, you know his, his blue phase, but I mean, you you guys. Tend to move through, you know, yeast fashion, in uh, in a, a maybe a little bit more of a a rapid fashion than most. T- tell me about that arc. Where you started, what you were brewing with initially, yeah. how you've kind of you know transitioned things over the years, and what where you find yourself now, and then where you're going to go after that.
1: <laughs> uh, where we started, I would say uh, maybe not the best move. Uh, on my part but we started with a strain that I had used home brewing that I had bought from a Canadian yeast lab that was uh, I think isolated from a hill farmstead growler so nothing I I couldn't talk to any of my friends about how to use this and it was like I liked the way it worked on a home brewing scale and we we used that for I think the first year and a half Uh, and it worked really well it attenuated well which is something that we've always wanted in our New England uh, or you know hazy IPAs uh, I don't when You love. say
0: attenuated well. What's that goal?
1: Yeah, uh, on our IPAs, we're typically trying to finish around three Play around 10, 12. Okay. Um, you know, doubles can occasionally finish a little bit higher. Which doesn't
0: sound terribly attenuated compared to some mm. other beers, yes. but, you know, yeah. for the style, for it certainly the, is.
1: It is. For the style, it is, and, you know, the amount of dextrin malt or dextrins like oats and, you know, adding a bunch of wheat, it, it does add unfermentables. So we bring that, that residual sugar up and, um, finding a strain that wouldn 't you know wouldn 't leave us at six play on our IPA right. or cause us to have to mash crazy low uh, um, so I think that that strain worked really well, but it it was a little bit more finicky than we wanted to deal with long term uh, It would produce some higher alcohols and double ipas that i wasn 't a fan of and um, we were a, I was a little bit scared of switching off of it because i I had grown to know it, um, but then we kind of switched, and then we were all over the board for a little bit. I think we were um, it's typically been a switch between London 3 derivatives and Conan derivatives. Uh, we've tried, you know, dry yeast with SO4. We've tried, um, I think we had one batch that was an SO4 or USO5 blend. Um, we've we've done batches where it's uh, Conan and Sactua blended. You know, we've, we've kind of gone all over the place and tried different things, and now I feel like we're finally settling in a little bit. Um, but still switching every, I don't know. Now it's only maybe every six months. Um, so we, yeah, we used Conan for a while, um, and really liked where it was headed. Uh, we do all of our yeast prop in house. Yeah. So, um, Patrick, our production manager is doing all of that and was, he was propagating all of the Conan and all of a sudden we just had, um, one slant that we grew up that just became a big diacetyl producer for us. So, you know, we had that before we realized that it was a problem, we had that in three separate tanks. Um, so we watched it, you know, diacetyl bloom in tank one. Um, we had to do a longer VDK rest and a, and we had to croiss in it uh, with fresh wort. And we're like, okay, well, good, we got that one. VDKs are, are, are good, passed diacetyl test. And then the second tank did it. We were like, oh no. We're going to have to do this to all three. So, you know, it worked out and, and uh, just longer tank time necessary, which kind of screwed up production a little bit. So uh, we switched back to London 3 after that. Um, and what we found is there's a, there's a much larger variance between uh, origins of certain strains than I had initially thought. So huh. ordering from one yeast provider was London 3 versus another. Um, Conan especially, I think just because that yeah. the origins of that are people isolating it off of heady cans, and you right. never know what generation that can was. Um, so, you know, pretty big variants there, and, and I we're really happy with where we're at with this London 3 now. Um, we made the switch about two months ago, so we're still dialing in exactly how we like this train, and fermentation profile, and pitching rates, and, and all that, but that's the, that's the fun of it. Who's this one from? Uh, this one is from Omega. Omega yeah
0: um let's talk about hops a little bit yeah uh, you know i think that's an interesting arc you know with yeast um you know how has that same arc of using yeast interacting with you know, fermentation profile say uh dry hopping earlier or, you know during active fermentation you know how how have your approaches to that developed over time
1: yeah that's changed a bunch too um i would say we started Uh, basically just incorporating homebrew techniques where, you know, I would dry hop during active fermentation. So we would, uh, we weren't very specific about when we would do it initially, it would be typically day four, then we would just kind of do it on day four, no matter what the gravity was at. And we quickly realized like, you know, what the sweet spot for that was. Um, And with the Conan and London three, we treat them pretty similarly, We, we now tend to dry hop about one to two play-doh you know before terminal uh we did have a phase where we would dry hop at about two degrees play-doh before final gravity and cap the tank um, and just rely on two prvs to just keep it at 15 until it was done fermenting um i think flavor that we drove through that um whether it be the you know that that unicorn of biotransformation or uh, just hop utilization doing it during um, during fermentation and how it basically just churns itself and um, shreds those hop pellets for you. Uh, I think that worked out really well, but it drove off aromatics. So now we're just a two-stage dry hop for most beers. Uh, we do that mid-fermentation, uh, typically anywhere between 68 and 70 degrees, allow it to free rise uh, uh, during that time, and then once we pass VDK on that, we soft crash to somewhere between 62 and 65, depending on the beer. Um, do dry hop two and then pass VDK again, and then crash.
0: Is that a consistent uh, process across all the hops varieties that you use, or do you uh, do you see different hops acting in different ways when you dry hop with them?
1: Yeah, uh, the the hop creep phenomenon is definitely different with different hops. Yeah. Um, so, when you say
0: hop creep I know what you mean But,
1: but. yeah sorry so we'll we'll do um, well lately what, what's been happening is a little bit different than normal so I don't know you know what the cause for this is uh, but typically with hop creep we would see dry hop one um, numbers would stay stable for you know maybe another day and then after that it would start dropping um, you know like half a play a day and we've seen it go um, and as so, many as and
0: so for those that aren't familiar with this. This is enzymes within the hops reigniting or restarting mm-hmm. fermentation process, um, yeah, which then again produces all of those fun VDKs that uh, yes. you have in that first fermentation process.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so um, obviously different hops have different enzymatic content. Yeah. So uh, and that it's not, it's not that's not a thing that you can look up on your YCH sure. or your BSG report. <laughs> uh, so you, you kind of don't know what you're getting into, <laughs> right, and right. and this is a new thing, so I wouldn't expect anybody to have yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but we would see that hop creep um after first dry hop and that's kind of how we would rely on that for extra attenuation we would we would mash a little bit higher because we knew that after we did dry hop two or dry hop one i mean uh we would see maybe a two plato drop from there uh to land at you know that three target yeah um but we've had some that have gone on for 18 days where it's been uh, (laughs) 0.1 plato a day and it's like oh please god stop today um, you know, and I think some of those, we that was before we were doing uh, much better VDK and diacetyl testing. We maybe could have yeah. gotten away with crashing it, but we just let them finish out, and uh, sometimes those what, yielded... What were the, yeah, what were the hops? Um ariana for us was a was a bad one a few months ago um
0: we say bad it's not bad it was just a challenging one it
1: was a it was not fun to deal with on the production schedule (laughs) um you know we had to move quite a few there's no bad
0: hops there's just different processes for using i
1: like the hop i think it's a fun new german variety that we are going to play with more but yeah um you know we're gonna we're gonna give it a few months off before i want to i want (laughs) to submit myself to that again and um, and I don't... You know, it could have been any number of other factors. We're a 10 Barrel brewery. I can never say that one thing caused anything. Sure, sure. Um, but, yeah, that's... that's Citra has been another one for us that when Citra is involved, yeah. sometimes we see a little bit more creep. Uh, I don't know if that's our lot or if that's Citra as a whole. Um, trying to research it and study it a little bit more. But, yeah. you know, there's 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 a lot of brewers talking about it, but there isn't much research out there.
0: Yeah, no, You sat on a panel at Big Beers, not... This year, but the year before, um, with Ross Canings from New Belgium, where you guys did some studying on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a little bit on hop creep, and that was mostly about mostly about bitterness that you extract right. while while dry hopping. Um, but that was definitely a point of discussion. And you know, it's funny with some strains, some people say they've never seen it. Um, yeah, and some strains like ours, it does happen. But you know, now we just kind of acknowledge it's a natural part of the process. Uh, we just allow it to clean itself up. Um, we've we've tried some enzymes in there, we've tried uh, alpha acetyl lactate LDC to reduce the precursor for diacetyl. Um, the, we're, we might try that again, but I think that was designed by a German lab that is not uh, taking any account for how heavily we're dry hopping, uh, <laughs> so I don't think that yeah. the, the amount that I'm adding to the tank is doing anything. Okay. Um, so we, I don't know, we've we found that that wasn't super helpful in IPA, um, so we kind of got away from that again. but. You know now it 's just we realize we're going to leave we've always had longer tank times on IPAs I think than some of our peers and we're I would say we average three weeks um, yeah where we want some of that cold and then we try to give it additional cold time um, in the bright after that but it's it's been a learning curve but we're I think I think we're at a good place now uh,
0: when it comes to yeast propagation, you know if you're you know obviously you're uh, you know, adding hops into your tanks before fermentation is done, how does that uh, impact the way that you harvest yeast and then, and then reuse
1: we are able to uh with our current strain we're able to crop and and either crop and reprop or um typically we'll pull uh on day five um pull yeast and dry hop on that day so sometimes it's enough to pitch the next batch sometimes uh patrick has a, a prop going and we're we're blending um or a lot of times he's just growing fresh crops for these beers because it's it's in, in the end it's a little bit easier and it's less of a headache because yeah. if you have a production built around you know going cone to cone on a beer and you can't then that's not fun yeah what do you use to to prop um in in terms of vessels yeah so we um we have a typically like three stage uh props so we've got a shaker table in there that um patrick will go from slant uh to pitchable on mm-hmm. on everything um, and then we just replace those slants every three to six months depending on how frequently we're using that one um, So we start typically around 100 to
0: 150. are has yeast worst nightmare I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah um, Well, it was always a goal of ours we have this yeah. lab built out from when we opened and uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out at the very beginning to do this but now I would um, expect
0: with the science theme of cerebral brewing and the way that you've branded around that 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 should
1: be <laughs> yeah it's some, more than just branding. branding we yeah. do yeah um, you know it, for a while though it kind of felt you know that was that was part of the initial goal and it, it felt a little bit fake that we're like we're we, we we should be doing this we should be doing this but it proved to be very hard um, but you know Patrick's got that locked down now and yeah. and and growing from you know about typically like 150 ml to um, thousand ml and then we we prop in kegs we also have yeah. a, a three barrel prop tank we got from mark's custom fab so we can yeah. roll it uh between the back of house and into t- the lab door uh to propagate in there and then we're pitching out of there
0: yeah um i, I ask everybody that makes uh, progressive or you know current hazy style ipas about uh, some of their favorite hops and i'm curious about what, what some of your favorite blends are
1: uh, we're full on the Sabro train right now. Uh, I like Sabro everybody. a lot.
0: Sabro is so hot right it now.
1: Um, so, but I also, uh, that's what, what does it do
0: for you? What, and, you know, the, I think the interesting thing about Sabro and what I love about brewers using it is that it's never a solo hop. People don't use it because no. it has its own flavor. They, they use it because it is like the, the best supporting actor in a yeah. hops blend. That you can find so you know, tell me a little bit about that
1: and I don't even know if it's a great supporting actor uh, if you really think about what that would mean because it it, it shines through every time yeah. uh, I like it you know we, we first learned about it from our friends at Cloudburst when they were using it as an experimental hop yep. and I could never get my hands on it and then you know just kind of somehow was offered some by YCH and yeah. bought a bunch of it um In the like twenty percent and lower range, you get it was the
0: homebrew hop. I mean, it was they initially uh, you know were branding this and pushing this out there to homebrewers.
1: Yeah, which is yeah, that's me. That's perfect. Yeah, (laughs) just big bigger homebrewer. It's that you know that that I've never opened a bag of hops before and smelled anything that intense before that was that definable. Like you know, you open a bag of Sabro and it is coconut out of the hop bag, which is. For me that was nuts i was like right. okay well this probably won't translate to the beer and then we used it and we're like oh it did <laughs> it really did so i think less than 20 percent on that one you get you know pineapple and coconut and just generic tropical fruit but if you go over that um it, you get this fun like cedar woody note to it i've
0: definitely I, got that cedar and then even like yeah. a mintiness mm-hmm. even that uh, can kind of come out and higher concentrations
1: so obviously we we do not single hop that one i um i think people have i don't i don't know how that would go but it is it is good in blends and you know obviously it plays nice with hops like citra um we just did a double ipa up at weldworks with nelson uh, sabro and citra so excited to see how that one comes out um yeah i I love blending that one because it's going to add depth and it's a thing that we've never seen before in our hops coconuts never you know, that's uh, we have a lot of people that that are like, I don't know, I don't think they added coconut to this. We didn't. <laughs> um, but other ones we love. I mean, we, the stereotypical like Citra Mosaic Galaxy. We use right, a lot of right. uh, Motueka is one of my favorites. Is another Blender Hop. Yep. Um, just really bright, and yeah, we we always like to blend our hops where we're not just getting fruit for the sake of fruit, and you know, doubling on Citra and Citra and Mosaic and Eldorado and all of that. We um, like to you know maybe combat the fruit that we get from uh citra with something uh, on the earthier dank side like columbus um so we've always tried to blend those things and then the the motueka adds a little bit of of depth where it's like maybe a little bit of lemongrass in your ipa maybe that's not what you want but um i always like blending with that one a little bit of that like lemon lime sprite character coming through sure
0: yeah i think it's a it's an interesting one. I've had to wrap my head around this because so many brewers are using pretty similar blends of hops and they're using similar yeast. They're, they're, they all know what water other, you know, their peers are using. And so, you know, all the ingredients are right there. You know, you, know, you can make what might seem to be the same beer as, as another brewer with, again, the same amounts of hops, the same blend of hops and the same kind of amounts, same kind of, you know, grist bill, everything else. Um, and then I, you know, I, was, I was driving around the other day Listening to um, uh, Some uh, classical music And that thought occurred to me That um, you know, you, Whether you listen to you know, uh, Von Kerjan or Bernstein Direct an orchestra It's the same piece It's the same exact notes It's the same instruments And yet You get a very different feeling Based on the conductor behind that um, you know, how do you imprint? You know, as you kind of you know conduct these ingredients in your own kind of you know symphonic thing to just drive this metaphor into the ground. Um, how do you? How do you? You know, put a cerebral stamp and make that beer taste like you and not just taste like everybody else.
1: It's tough, um, you know. We, we definitely have a philosophy besides behind what we do, and we try to, you know. I think having a, a similar process for all of our IPAs is, you know, obviously a big help. Um, but it's it's about uh, that intangible thing that you're like when you're formulating the recipe that what what your end goal is. And I think it's very easy to brew these IPAs and be like, okay, well, uh, we need another IPA. This time we're just gonna use Mosaic and what other hop and just pick another hop, and they work sometimes. Um, we try to be. I mean, it's that's kind of the origin behind the name. We try to be more intentional. We try to put a lot of thought into what we're doing and talk about it, and um, and have that um, that end goal in mind when we're brewing it. We, you know, we we have a pers- uh, a final gravity in mind, and we it doesn't always happen the way you want it to, um, but you're we're looking for that. Like for us, I would say our IPAs are typically on the drier side for the style Um, we have some newer ones with the London 3 that we switched to that are a little bit higher finishing that we're messing around with but overall drier finish a little bit more intense bitterness than some of our competitors um and you know just driving the aromatics in a unique way um I don't know that there's anything that we're doing that it's like there's no edge there's no like I've got this and no one else has this it's just uh it's our expression of IPA um yeah.
0: So we've talked a lot about IPA now. You know, you, you operate uh, equally adeptly in the worlds of you know pastry stouts and now <laughs> even like uh, tiki kettle sours, which seems to be your, your latest jag. Yes. Um, you know, and, and we were talking before we started the podcast a little bit about that. Uh, you know, since you've already been operating with those with similar flavors coming from fruit seems like that next evolu- evolution you know, for beer flavor you guys are obviously not the only ones doing it that tiki craze seems to have uh, taken off across the country over you know, the last four to six months
1: yeah I don't know where that one came from that was uh, the tiki thing we just end up you know you, you go to these festivals across the country and, and most big cities have a tiki bar and we just kind of found ourselves there at the end of the night and then it's like these cocktails are delicious like I just want to make beer that tastes like this and um, and so we just did. <laughs> we're still, you know, we're we're only two deep. We've got the third in the tank right now, and and the first two were all about just trying to get our sour IPA uh, base the way we wanted it, right? Uh, with some of, some of the more easier to use fruits, uh, but now we're really excited to to layer in flavors with with some of the spices, some of the you know blackstrap molasses to mimic that rum profile, um, you know. Uh, we'll see where this takes us, but it's, it's been the past two months of obsession. So here's, here's the question
0: for you. Why call it a sour IPA?
1: I don't know. (laughs) Uh... Well, at least you're honest about that. Well, I, I don't know what else to call it, and I think yeah. um, you know, there, there's been people out there that have defined that sour IPA, you know, sure. Hudson Valley being that that brewery, right. and um, I don't know that I would call it that, but it it works and it sells, and I think people now have an understanding of what it is. Right. Yeah, you know, we do have we do have a lot of people that review it, and they're like, I don't get any IPA in this. I'm like, well, there's a lot of hops. <laughs> right. We uh, you know we do a lower whirlpool temp uh, hop stand like our normal IPAs, uh, just less in the world Pool and then an intense dry hop, so it's all there, but right. it's really fruited. Uh, so you might not get that as much. Um, I I always struggle with styles because I never know. I don't know what to call things. I don't. Right. I don't really. Uh, anytime we have to enter beers into um, any like BJCP style, I'm like I have to pull Patrick over. I'm like I don't know what style this should be. Like I don't brew that way. Um, so we'll we'll just you know brew what we think is going to be good. Some are some are obviously easy to fit into categories, right. but right. some you are. Know, it,
0: I think there is a there is a rationale there, and you know, for for better or worse, the letters IPA have become shorthand to beer drinkers for hoppy. Mm-hmm. You know, hoppy means a couple of different things. It can mean you know fruity and bright, and you know, in that kind of uh, hazy IPA type of way. It can also mean bitter. You mm-hmm. know, in that kind of West Coast IPA kind of way. So IPA means hoppy. You know, in that broad definition of hoppy, which is why we now see things like sour IPA, uh, even from traditional barrel-aged sours, breweries, uh, you know, uh, branding those specifically as sour IPA. Uh, you know, of course, hoppy kettle sours being also branded as sour IPA. Uh, and so there's this broad spectrum, but IPA becoming that that shorthand, if you will, for yeah. has hops in it or has a significant it's, and palpable amount of hops in it.
1: Especially for how diverse that style is now. I mean, it. Uh, I would say the IPA marker essentially means nothing other than hoppy now because right. yeah, it's it's in everything. <laughs> so how long is this
0: tiki trend going to last? And uh, are we going to be talking about these by the end of this year, or is this uh, just a, another step on the evolution of, of flavor for you guys?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, we're we only we've only released two, so yeah. we'll see where it goes. Uh, I think it's it's one of those things though that for me um, is fun right now, yeah. and that's. You know, something that every once in a while, you know, we're three and a half years in and and you can get really comfortable with certain things. And and then all of a sudden, you know, IPA isn't as challenging as it's still challenging. But you still you need something new to, like, drive you to, you know, be excited. Um, Right. And and Tiki drinks are that for me right now. So we'll see. I mean, it's been, you know, I always I want to drink lager. I want to drink Saison. But this is the fun, weird thing that I want to do right now. So.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, lager and Saison. You know, Saison in particular is something that you've been doing since you started the brewery. Yeah. Um, not just, uh, you know, uh, sack Saisons, but also, you know, brett Saisons. Um, it's, uh, you, you've brewed some particularly good ones and ones that, uh, you know, especially the, the true collaboration that... Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that's a saison. Now let me uh, back out a little bit. <laughs> uh, anyway, I've had some fantastic dry hop saisons, you know, from you, uh, and Thank some you. fantastic non dry dry hop bread saisons. Um, talk to me a little bit about how, as a brewer, you balance some of those things that you're passionate about that consumers may purchase on a slower or lower level, you know, versus you know these kinds of hot beers. I think you know, as you've told me before. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. You can like both of these things. And so, you know, that idea that certain curmudgeonly brewers throw out there that you're just brewing that to make money also seems a little simplistic and its, uh, you know, uh, in its critique, in that it's possible to both like dry bread saisons and also like tiki inspired sour IPAs. Um, but how do you balance? you know, that kind of challenge between what you want the vision for the Cerebral brand and your brewery to be and what you want to be known for versus what your consumers want from you and, uh, and what they want to buy most frequently.
1: I think when we opened, we were more concerned on what we would be known for. Uh, and then we quickly realized that we had no control over that. Uh, in in terms of what we were producing. So, uh, when we opened, we, um, we were brewing a lot of you know lower ABV mix, uh, clean and mixed from Cezannes, Uh and that's always been my kind of passion project. Yeah. And we were brewing a lot of IPAs, and we were occasionally brewing stouts. And then within that, certain things just took off more than others. saison being not one that took off, um, but I, you know that that didn't shock me in any way. Um, but we've brewed them, you know, uh, fairly regularly since we opened. And the goal was always to get the program off to the ground where we would have a few different bottled options of mix firm um, or sour, uh, you know, saisons uh, in that whole spectrum, beer to guard, any, any of those things. And I think we're in a pretty happy place right now where we get to produce those and they tend to last longer. They definitely sit longer, but those are bottle conditioned products. So uh, fortunate for where my passions lie, the, the shelf stability of that is really good. Um, we definitely brew a lot of IPA and it's, I don't know what per- percentage of per- production it would be, but it's, it's the bulk of it um, and we brew a lot of uh, you know, bigger stouts, pastry stouts being part of that um, and we just try to layer it in I, you, know, we, we, you just have to kind of check yourself and make sure that you're not doing something and giving too much into what people are asking of you and that you're still giving them perspective on what you want. Um, you know, we keep our IPAs true to ourselves we brew them to a style that we prefer sometimes that means that people are going to go elsewhere for their IPA and that's fine um, because that's, that's, the, you know, that's the world we live in we have other producers in the state that make amazing IPA in a similar vein to us that, that's fine if they want to go drink, drink their IPA they can do that we're going to do it our own way um, but then you know, we try to just um, make sure we're happy with what we're doing, I don't want to. I don't want to just be brewing IPA for the sake of brewing IPA because yeah, you can make more money if you brew IPA. But um, sometimes we're just going to take a tank turn and do something that could be perceived as stupid with it. But. <laughs> It, you know, and sometimes it doesn't work out. But you
0: also don't want to just be brewing
1: Brett saison to
0: oh maintain no. some credit, uh, cred, and you know, amongst industry peers. Because
1: uh, I think there's a little bit of pressure to do that. I think yeah. you know, you, you look at some of the guys that you really look up to, and you you look at people that have made their business out of just being true to themselves and only brewing that. And I, I don't think. Um, I, I don't think that would work for us. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it would. And maybe I've given up on that a little bit, but also I like IPA, so I'm fine admitting that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that it's balance. okay. It's, yeah, okay. it's we're, okay. We're allowed to like and drink I, hazy IPA. I do like IPA. Um, <laughs> although we
0: say that as we're drinking a, uh, footer lager beer true, right here. <laughs> true. I,
1: I mean, we've been drinking more of that than anything lately is the, yeah. you know, I mean, we've, we've got beer stout in town, so we drink a ton of that too. And sure. um, I don't know it's just that balance of like what makes you happy what do you want to do and you have to layer that in or it's not going to be sustainable right um so tell me about this fooder lager beer
0: you know i uh i've noticed that this kind of wood-aged uh pilsner or keller beer has been taking off i was just up in new york last week and got to go hang out with the guys from threes back at their uh, their barrel cellar yeah and uh, drink some of the their keller beer uh, uh, straight off of uh, the wood fooder uh why why Make a, a logger and put it into wood.
1: Um, I would say
0: the, the o- outside of the first thing, which is that yeah. that wooden tank doesn't cost any more than a stainless tank. It's so uh, maybe it, <laughs> it is cheaper. And So I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, it's yeah. it's you know you're not tying up expensive tanks.
1: Yeah, I, that that definitely wasn't the consideration, but I would say. Um, our motives lied in when we opened we we opened uh, late 2015 and I think I could be wrong on this but I'm pretty sure we were the only home brewers that had gone pro that year yeah it was you know it was beer opening and it was little machine opening and spangling and call to arms and all these guys with production brewing experience and me being scared out of my mind that I maybe had waited too long to open um, and you know, then then we we drink slow pour, and you drink Bierstadt Helles, and you're like, okay, so <laughs> what am I going to do to this? Um, yeah, right, right. And and it that was pretty intimidating, and I think it just it just took some time to realize like we aren't going to. I'm not a traditional brewer by any means, so I'm not going to brew a traditional German pilsner. Um, and I, I didn't know what that would mean for us, but then we in Copenhagen we were at the Mikulder Festival and tried. Um, I think it's called prayer group uh, from tired hands and it was one of the most life-changing beers i've ever had where he was doing uh you know slow pours of that and it was a fooder fermented pilsner i think there was some wheat in there and he said he conditioned it on a little bit of lemon juice and it was just like the the most beautiful table beer uh i could have like had a picture of that and been been very happy um, and something I'd never really considered. And then we, you know, I've had beer from Threes, and they were another big inspiration here. And it was just another way I'd never really considered to, to basically make our stamp on, on lager uh, so that we could brew the style and not just be directly compared to someone that's going to be way more traditional than us. Um, and, yeah, we were on, I think, our fifth. Uh, we just put a Hellas into the tank two days ago. So excited to see how that turns out. And, and you know, it's a learning curve. Uh, with this but I think it's what have you learned um, well Patrick has learned that growing lager yeast is a little bit harder than growing (laughs) ale yeast (laughs) sure Um, obviously you have to pitch more of it too so that's been a that's been something but I mean the the one that we have now um, international waters that'll come out in a few weeks uh, is our first in-house propagated um, food or fermented lager so that's kind of a big moment for us and Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy what the fooder does to the beer, but it's, um, it's not what you'd expect. I don't get any, you know, we, we bought it steam neutralized, so I wasn't looking for any Oak profile. Um, I, you know, we did a a bunch of hot rinses on it because it, you know, you kind of have that sawdusty taste initially because it is fresh wood. Um, but it's, you know, it's a beautiful fooder crafters fooder. Uh, we got a 30 barrel and, um, it's this like intangible roundness in the flavor um, the first beer we put through it was a, a stripped down Vienna lager. Um, and the, the mouthfeel on it was fuller than it should have been. Uh, the body was better. And it just, it just took, took a lot of those, those edges and just rounded them off for us. Um, so we do all of our primary fermentation uh, for our lagers in the fooder. Uh, we have a glycol chill plate. It's the biggest one that they could offer us. Yeah. Uh, so we have glycol in there. And we do primary and then uh, pass VDK and then we step crash two degrees a day and transfer to a bright for more conditioning because we can't get any lower than 38 degrees in there. So
0: Yeah. Um, how do your consumers like it?
1: Uh, it sells well. I mean, it's, we knew this was going to be something that, you know, you talk about that balance. This is not something that I was like, I'm going to buy a fooder. We're going to sell so much damn lager. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. we. Uh, we sell—I don't know—it's probably our number three mover at all times in the tap room, yeah, which is pretty good when you have a lot, lot of all. IPAs. Sure, sure. Uh, it sells at accounts pretty well. Yeah, because obviously, how many of
0: your customers are buying a, uh, a pilsner to ride along with that pastry stout just to uh, to lighten things up uh, I in between, seen between that sips
1: specifically? But I, I hope that's happening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, uh, so what's on the horizon for uh, for Cerebral, Sean? What's next? What do you? What's most exciting to you in the world of brewing these days? And what are you looking forward to exploring more?
1: Um, for for me, I would say you know the fooder Lager program we're growing and our barrel aging program. Uh, we're, we we lease space across town, so we've got about twenty five hundred square feet for our oak um, that most people don't know exists, which is fun. Uh, so we're up to around one hundred and ninety oak barrels over there right now. Uh-huh. Um you know, most of that is is porter stout. I would say probably sixty percent of that, uh, and then the rest is uh, wild mixed firm Brett projects that we have
0: across in, town. That sounds like a, like it's its own logistical challenge.
1: It is. Uh, so we have a box truck, and yeah. we how uh, far away is it? Um, three and a half miles. Oh, so geez. we leave space from Law's whiskey. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So we have a branch house permit over there to store beer and. Um, it, we, it, it's not fun, but it, you know, when you I thought
0: threes was crazy for driving on a forklift down a, a Brooklyn street uh, around a corner to to their warehouse. But yeah, yeah three miles, that's a, that's a little different challenge.
1: Yeah, we fill barrels here and then we load them. Uh, we don't have a forklift because we don't have space for a forklift. So we have an electric stacker. We lift them, um, you know, strap them together, lift them into the truck, uh, take six barrels over at a time. When we moved, we, we used to have, believe it or not, 75 oak barrels in this building yeah um
0: i think i was i, I remember seeing him yeah it's pretty
1: crowded yeah there was no room to work uh i would say job satisfaction on the back was you know suffering a little yeah. bit because there was too much stuff so we eventually got that space moved them all out um and that was an undertaking getting them all over there and now we're at the you know now we're starting to bring them back yeah uh, so that's fun so you know finally having the the room to grow that program instead of just releasing two a year yeah um that's exciting
0: well, you still seem to drive lines for those. But, uh, well, cool. Hey, Sean, thanks for uh, for joining me thanks here at the Craft me. Beer and Brewing Podcast here on a Friday. Uh, the tap room opened while we were talking and uh, had some little noise, uh, some energy going on in the back. But uh, I, I think uh, people will ultimately uh, appreciate that uh, we were here drinking some of your beer and yeah. uh, and having a great conversation. Uh, thank you again, and uh, you know we're looking forward to hosting a panel next week uh, here in Denver, Colorado at our Brewery Accelerator where you, Neil Fisher from Weldworks and uh, Lee Clighorn from Outer Range are going to talk about uh, brewing trendy styles. Many thanks to our sponsors that helped bring you this episode. GD Chillers sets the standard for glycol chilling. BSG Ingredients brings the world to your brew house. Ska Fabrication is the leading choice for packaging automation. And join your peers April 8th through 11th in Denver for the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America. And... If you come out here to Denver for that Craft Brewers Conference, April 8th through 11th, stop by the tap room here at Cerebral Brewing. Come say hey. Come say hey to Sean. Grab some of their beer. Uh, Whether it's a pastry stout, an IPA, or a bread saison, they got you covered. Cool. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.